It is always a delight to have visitors among us, but we are here together this morning to offer honor and glory to the God of heaven, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and for us to worship God in the way in which he has instructed us to do so. And we are always glad when there are those who are willing to come and to worship God with us. This morning, I want us to study the Lord's Supper. And by way of introduction, I would like to point out something which might be on several people's minds. Tomorrow will be known as Veterans Day, and many people will be thinking about those who've given their lives in the surface of our country. On two occasions, I have been privileged to go to the Arlington National Cemetery and be there when there was the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And while you are there, you will be instructed by those present to stand out of respect for those who have passed and served our country. It's a very emotional and very moving time because you think about all of those good men and good women who sacrificed their lives to preserve what you and I enjoy today. Were it not for the fact that some were so willing, you and I might not have the privilege to worship freely today. We might not have the opportunity to enjoy the freedom of moving about. If you think about the possibilities about what could have happened without their sacrifice. But then when you think about the sacrifice that some of them gave, some of them sacrificed themselves for another comrade in arms. Some may have sacrificed themselves for a whole platoon. And then you think about the ultimate sacrifice that was given by our Lord. It should be a time for us to reflect in a very solemn way with respect, just like you think about that tomb of the unknown soldier, with the respect that we would honor those men, the Lord should be respected because he didn't give his life for one. He didn't give his life for a select few. By the grace of God, he tasted of death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. He died so that you and I could enjoy not only the privilege of freedom of worshiping God, but that we might enjoy the freedom from sin. John chapter 8 and verse 32. This should be a time that you and I could explain to our neighbors, our visitors, our friends, our children, Last Sunday morning, I preached on the subject of instrumental music. And part of the thought as we began that lesson was, we have neighbors, we have friends, we have those who are interested, who want to know why we do what we do. For those of you who are here this morning, I'm going to attempt to preach a lesson from God's Word that explains why we did what we just did a few moments ago, and the partaking of the Lord's Supper. 
I'm going to ask you that if you will to take your Bibles out. We're going to, you'll see most of the scriptures on the screen, but I'd like for people to read it themselves. And we're going to study the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to study about three things. Verses 17 through 22, we will look at a passage of perversion. People had taken that which God had given and changed it, warped it, perverted it into something that God did not intend it for it to be. Then we're going to look at the proper procedure, what God wants done when we worship Him in the Lord's Supper. And the third part will be practical, some principles for participation. As I partake of the bread, as I partake of the fruit of the vine, what should be in my mind? What should I be thinking about? Let's begin, first of all, with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. And Paul says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, And in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise a church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Folks, those are some pretty stern words. Those words reflect... An apostle who is frustrated with a congregation that has taken something so pure, something so holy, something so honorable, and perverted it. There was a failure to realize that the Lord's Supper is not just personal, but also is a church activity. There is a personal dimension of the Lord's Supper. What I do myself individually. But many people misunderstand the fact, as they had, that the Lord's church, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is a congregational communion. The word communion means sharing. It's often translated in the New Testament as fellowship. Or to describe, for instance, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were partners in business together. We have to understand that what we did just a few moments ago involved the whole congregation together. Listen to Paul as he said back in chapter 10. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not communion of the body of Christ? Is it not a sharing of it together? Division 
destroys the intention of the Lord's Supper. God indicated that we were to do this together. That we share in this meal, if you will call it that, together. How do you express to someone else the fact of togetherness with them? You invite them to a meal at your home or they to your, their home. You share something together. We share together here as Christians the honor of Jesus Christ as our Savior and we remember Him together. Just like, for instance, when we stand together for such patriotic things as the playing of our national anthem, as when we recite the Pledge of Allegiance. It's something we do together to, under, to underscore our unity. And such should be the case with the Lord's Supper. And if you will notice the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, it is something to be celebrated at one place. When you come together in one place, by a one people, a united people, at one time. This idea that a person should be able to partake their Lord's Supper and then someone else do theirs and someone else do theirs is foreign to the New Testament teaching. But I want you to consider some specifics with regards to this. They had perverted its amounts. When you look, he said some were hungry and others were drunk. That is, they had too much. The home was the place for the satisfying of your hunger. If you're hungry, you need to eat, you need to drink before you come to services. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is not so you can satisfy your hunger. That's the reason why there's not a tremendous amount that is prepared. It's a memorial. But yet they were using it as an opportunity to express their abundance for those who had and to shame those who did not have. I want you to think of it like somebody bringing a sack lunch. Some were bringing a great amount and feasting on it, while others sat there with nothing. That was a real perversion of what God intended. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 22, What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? But they also perverted its purpose as well. If you will notice the phrase that those who are approved may be recognized among you. These people were looking at this as just another opportunity to allow others to see their wealth, to show off their spirituality. That was never intended to be a part of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 6 and verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But that leads me to verses 23 and following. We're only going to look at verses 23 through 29. But right after Paul says, here's how you've misused it. 
Here is the way that you ought to do it. Beginning with verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Paul said, what I received is what I gave to you. These are not directions that have been taken and modified to suit a particular group of people. What I received from the Lord is what I gave to you. That's exactly what God expects us to do with every bit of His Word. Whatever is given in His Word should be given to the congregation exactly as God has given it. After all, it is the Lord's Supper is not our supper. Bread was a symbol of his body. When you think about that element, the bread really does represent, for the most part, in color like the, the skin of the body. It's very a very close resemblance. It would have been unleavened bread because this was the Passover. No leaven could have been in the house. I think it's important sometimes we talk about the broken body of Christ when in reality we need to be talking about the bread is what was broken. Because John 19 verse 36 says, For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled or should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. The breaking of the bread was so that it could be distributed to each and every one. The fruit of the vine was a symbol of his blood. It is also a fitting symbol. If you take that cup and you look at the contents, the fruit of that grape, it very closely resembles what the blood looks like as it flows from the body. Jesus made it clear, though, that that blood was shed for a particular purpose. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, don't miss the last phrase there, for the remission of sins. 
Every time that you take that cup and you see that contents of that cup, that fruit of the vine, it should impress in your mind. Jesus shed His blood, but that blood that He shed was so that my sins could be forgiven. Folks, the bread and the fruit of the vine are not just simple, unimportant elements. They carry with them great symbolism. They carry with them great thoughts, great reminders for us. Which means there is a worthy and an unworthy manner in which you and I can partake of them. If I'm the kind of person who takes what God has provided and I don't do as I ought, then it's going to be an unworthy manner. So what he says, a man ought to examine himself. That's tough for us sometimes. When that bread is passed to me, when that fruit of the vine is passed to me, I ought to be looking and thinking about my motives. I ought to be thinking about, in my mind, what has been done for me. I ought to be looking at the way in which I do this. You know, it's very possible that he says that if you don't do this properly, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. He said if you do that in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He says not discerning the Lord's body. You're not thinking about the, the flesh that was torn from his body as he was beaten. By those Roman soldiers. You're not thinking about how his side was pierced. When they put the crown of thorns on his head. And the blood that he shed. He said I want you to do this in remembrance of me. When that body and that blood is passed. Or the elements are passed. And we're to remember the body and the blood. And I think about what I'm going to eat for lunch. Think about the cute little child sitting in front of me making the faces. Thinking about what might be on my cell phone. Thinking about any number of things. Folks, that's when it's wrong. That's when it's wrong. We proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. We have visitors with us this morning. We have some visitors that are not members of the Lord's church. Would I want to be a stumbling block to one of them? I mentioned that I've been to the Arlington National Cemetery twice. One time I went... There were some people there who had decided they weren't going to stand. They weren't going to show respect. One of the soldiers went over to the man and he said, Sir, you will stand. 
And if he had not, I'm sure he would have helped him up. I thought that was important to emphasize the respect. Folks, as important as that is, nothing compares with what's been done right here. This is the Lord's Supper, and we're saying something to our visitors, to our children, to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. The key element for the individual is the participation of the mind in remembrance. I want to I be practical here. How do I focus my mind on what it ought to be thinking about during that period of time? Well, I want to suggest to you a couple of ways to accomplish this. The first one is to read Scripture about the crucifixion. You can take passages like John chapter 19. And as the bread and the fruit of the vine are passed, you can lay your Bible in your lap and you can turn to that section of Scripture and you can read it. Focusing your mind. And folks, if there's other things going on around you, I encourage you to do that. Take some time to do that. Another thing to do is one could focus their mind on a specific part of what Jesus endured. It's probably been a little over 30 years ago, probably 35 years ago, when I sat in a class under Brother Roy Deaver. One of the students had to present an outline every class session of a sermon. One of the students presented one on the seven aids to remembrance, to communion. And he said, I don't know who came up with this, but I think it's a great idea. Brother Roy Deaver said very humbly, I'm the one who came up with it. I preached that as a sermon back in the 1960s. And I have used it presented it here, I know, on two or three occasions. Every time we visit the Bible lands and we go to the garden tomb, I try to present it there. And you can, some of you have asked me to present this. We have new members. I know some of you may not have heard this before. But if you can count to seven, you can remember, and I do this every Lord's Day, one Lord. One Lord. Nobody like Him. No one else qualifies. In Ephesians 4, Paul would say, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. We don't have many saviors. We have one Savior, Jesus the Christ. He is Lord. On either side of our Lord were two, we call them thieves, they were actually robbers, thugs. They were men who had mistreated people of their society. There were people come up and 
stick a knife to your throat and say, give me your money or I'll take your life. That's the kind of men these people were. John 19 and verse 18, where they crucified him, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus at the center, which brings me to the idea that there were three crosses. As you think about those three crosses, the first one you see is a cross of rejection. There's one of those robbers who cast mocking statements about Jesus, and he never changed his mind. He died in his sins on a cross of rejection. On the other side of Jesus was one of those robbers who had a change of heart, who asked Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He also rebuked the other robber, saying, we're justly getting our reward, but this man's done nothing wrong. He died on a cross of repentance. He died to his sins. And in the center was the cross of redemption, where Jesus died for my sins. As you go further, there were four parts to his garments. They took the clothes of Jesus, evidently must have stripped him naked or very close to naked, and they gambled for his clothes. Who's going to get this? Who's going to get that? I have in my mind thought through and tried to guess what those parts would be. Two of the main parts of anyone's clothing would have been the outer garment, which would have been called a cloak. The inner garment was a tunic, much like we would call a long undershirt. There was a headdress, sometimes they're called kafias today, where the head would be wrapped. And then there would be a belt. According to John 19.23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. We don't want to tear it. It's too valuable. Beyond that, there were five wounds. As they crucified our Lord, they drove nails through his hands and nails through his feet. And they also pierced his side. Five wounds inflicted upon the Lord. I know there were more than that, but those are five that you can definitely think about. You remember, as Thomas doubted, he says, I want to put my fingers into those prints in his hands and and I want to stick my hand into his side. Six hours. Sometimes I have done something that has injured myself. And I know some of you have as well. Seems like time passes very slowly. I want you to imagine being nailed 
to a cross for six hours. And if you read Mark chapter 15, verse 25, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Following Roman time, that would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. Dropping down to verse 33, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From the third hour to the ninth hour, six hours. From three o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. And then seven sayings. While the Lord was on the cross, the four gospel accounts provide for us seven things that the Lord said. The first one was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Folks, can you imagine Jesus having been nailed to the cross? Looking down on the faces of those mocking him, spitting upon him, mistreating him, and to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Amazing. He looked down at his mother and said, Woman, behold your son. And the disciple whom he loved, which was John, he said, Behold your mother. Jesus had physical brothers, but it appears at this time they didn't believe in him. Jesus is not going to leave care of his mother to those who do not even believe. And so to that disciple whom he loved, he committed the care of his mother. The third thing that Jesus said was to that robber who was penitent. Assuredly, I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, there's so much that's within that. You think about paradise, where Jesus was going, where his body would not see corruption while it was in that tomb, Acts chapter 2. The fourth thing Jesus said was, I thirst. The dehydration that would have taken place from the sweating of the drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The mistreatment, the beating that, take, that took place at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And then the blood that would have dripped from his hands and his feet would have left Jesus with a tremendous thirst. Number five. In Aramaic, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think about the Lord having to suffer alone. Why do you think it was dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour? ought to make cold chills come on everybody when you think about the import of those words. Number six, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then finally, 
In John 19.30, it is finished. And He gave up the ghost. The Spirit left the body. That body was dead, placed within a tomb. But it didn't stay there. That body came back to life on the first day of the week. And you and I celebrate this on the first day of the week as we're taught in Acts 20 and verse 7. The Lord's Supper is too important for us to not do it properly. We should never let this opportunity pass and and not think about it. In fact, we should never be careless nor calloused. And folks, this worries me. I can't see in anybody else's heart. I'm glad I sit on the front. But you should never partake of that bread and that fruit of the vine without thinking of the Lord. And you should never become callous to think, oh, this is just another Sunday. Every time it ought to have special meaning to us. But do you know the only ones who have the right to the table are the children? If you're not a child of God, that supper cannot have the same meaning to you. We're going to sing an invitation song. It is to encourage. The Lord wants you to be one of His children. He wants you to celebrate this supper with Him. You can do that because you believe that He's the Christ. Repent of your sins and be baptized. And oh, what privileges you will enjoy. The blood that was shed for you. And if you're one of God's children and you need to come home, now's the time as we stand and sing.